You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that their journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. Our guest today is Babur Ahmed. Babur was born and brought up in London in the 1970s. At the age of 18, he was moved by the crisis in Bosnia and left to provide humanitarian aid. He eventually fought in the conflict to defend the Bosnian Muslims who were being massacred and suffered shrapnel wounds while he was there. After later attending Imperial College in London, Babur travelled to the conflict in Chechnya. Years later, he was arrested and abused by anti-terrorism police and eventually received damages from the Metropolitan Police. Perhaps the most challenging time for Babur was his arrest and detention in prison for 11 years, both in the UK and the US, often in the harshest prisons and with significant periods in solitary confinement. There was a very public campaign of support for Babur and over 140,000 Britons signed a government petition stating that he should be tried in a UK court rather than in the US if there were any charges against him. He was eventually released from US custody in 2015 and returned to his family in London after admitting to hosting some content on his website. The US judge said in her verdict that Babur was a good person who was never interested in terrorism. We'll hear more today inshallah and brother Babur, assalamu alaikum and thank you for joining us. To begin with, just an apology. I've had a um, bad cold and cough for about a week or so, so my voice is not um, what it uh, what it normally is. So, Babur, we are sitting in London, um, surrounded by thousands of jars of honey. You recently launched a new business, the Latin Honey Shop. Can you explain why you chose this venture? When I was living in America, I lived with uh, Latinos, uh, South Americans, Colombians, Mexicans, and uh, I learned Spanish living with them. They told me about their continent, uh, which has more than half the species on Earth, and they told me about a honey which tasted so nice that the bears and the beekeepers would fight over it. So um, when I came back, then this was something I looked into, worked on it for a year with my family. We just launched this a month ago, latinhoneyshop.com. Are you an expert in all honeys? Have you tried different ones? I mean, do they all taste different? Can you tell? Well, yes. I mean, I spent one year researching, uh, you know, we spent one year researching the business. So um, there are different types and um, different colours and flavours from black to white to liquid to set. Uh, the most important thing is that it's raw and it's uh, it's organic and um, we import it ourselves. So you can check us out on the latinhoneyshop.com website. Fantastic. And so these, I guess, for many of us, these simple pleasures of honey and, you know, picking up from the supermarket, etc. Being through what you have over the years, is it these even these little experiences mean so much? I mean, the first time you tasted honey again after you were freed, was it different than how you had tasted it in the rest of your life? It was coming back. Um, I experienced things the way a child might. So when I went swimming for the first time in 11 years, it was like I'd never been swimming before. Watching uh, a sunset out in the open, birds flying, playing with children, uh, eating your mum's cooking. So these were things that um, I experienced them for the first time. So it was fun. Like when I had a mango, it was like I'd never ever eaten a mango before because I'd forgotten what it tasted like. It was a pleasure. And when you were in prison, would you dream about what you would do when you got out? Would you eat certain things? Would you (coughs) say, as soon as I get out, when I'm released, this is what I'm going to do? Did you have that almost planned in your head? Yes and no. I mean, a lot of the time I was just thinking about saving myself um, 
I mean, for the first 10 years, I spent 11 years in prison, but for the first 10 years was without, like indefinitely, without me knowing how long I would be spending in prison. So for those 10 years, it was just trying to save myself from this situation. And I didn't really have a future and uh, all I had was a past and the present had been taken away from me. But in the final year, when I knew that I was coming home, that's when I began to, to you know, to think about these things. But although at some point when I was in the solitary confinement, when I did not know when I would be coming home or if I would be coming home, I wrote a bucket list of things that I wanted to do. And I did it in a way to give myself a hope. And I wrote on there simple things like read a bedtime story to my nephews and nieces, um, eat a, at a certain restaurant um, or go to a certain place or, or experience something. Uh, so it was, um, I did think about those things and uh, some of them I'm glad to say I've done. One of them was to, to watch a cricket match uh, of uh, Pakistan playing England with my dad. So um, last year I was able to do that because the Pakistan team was visiting and we had a friend, we were able to get free tickets and we went to Lords and um, I put that picture up on my uh, blog at barbarahmed.com or my Facebook page. I put it up there as well. And uh, so I'm, I'm working through that list. It's a long list, but I'm working through have you, it. Have you got any other sort of wacky things on the list? Uh, probably not ones that I could mention. <laughs> but one of them also was to, to start a business okay. and to, to be able to earn. So that is something which I'm in the process of, uh, of ticking off uh, as well. And during some of those years, did, did you think you would never get released or did you always have the aspiration and hope you know one day this will all resolve in situations like that you're always teetering between hope and fear you know fear holds you prisoner and uh, hope sets you free but um yeah there were times you know and i'm not gonna lie to you i did have moments of despair i did have moments where i thought man i'm gonna die in prison you know i'm gonna spend the rest of my life here i'm i'm not going to be home to, you know, to bury my parents. But at those moments, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would show me a lot of dreams. Uh, not because of I'm some a righteous or pious person, but similar people that have been through experiences like this. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows them dreams. Because sometimes just reading the Quran is not enough. Just reading the Hadith is not enough. You need something more. You need something like physical or tangible. You need Allah to show you something. And at those moments, I would be shown dreams. I would be shown dreams of Quranic verses. I would be shown dreams of my future, of what was going to happen. I would see dreams where I'm back with my family. I'm walking on the streets of my neighborhood or I'm doing certain things. So those things, they sort of strengthen the, the, the hope factor and uh, they reduce the, the, the fear factor. But it was a constant battle between the two. When you experienced these dreams, did some of them while you were there come true and did that reaffirm that actually these are true dreams rather than just a lot of lot of thinking on your own? How did you know that they weren't just, you know, your imagination or your thinking in terms of that very, you know, solitary confinement? I mean, as the Prophet Sam he described, he said dreams are of three types. The majority are the ones, the musings of the mind. A minority are nightmares and a minority are visions. And some of the signs of visions is that you remember them. Most of the visions that I had came true. I saw dreams of uh, about myself being moved to another prison, for example. Um, I saw them and they came true. I saw dreams about world events, earthquakes, like tsunami. I saw the tsunami um, one night before it happened, the 2004 tsunami. I saw that in a dream. I saw um, what's going to happen to other people, the two cousins, gang members. And I saw that one would be convicted and found guilty and spent his life in prison and the other one would go home. And so most of the visions, they came true. And so that sort of reinforced the hope that visions that I had about my future and about coming home, that they would also want come true one day. And uh, they did. 
Did you ever experience visions before you went to prison or since? Um, before occasionally and since occasionally, but when you need it, Allah sends it to you. And at that time, I needed them, so um, he he did uh, he did send them to me. So, Babar Ahmed, um, tell us about the first item you're going to take with you on this desert island. The first item I'm going to take with me is a verse in Surah Baqarah. Verse, I think, is two hundred and fourteen. And it is أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم أم حسبتم أن تدخلوا الجنة ولما يأتيكم مثل الذين خلوا من قبلكم مستهم البأساء والضراء وزلزلوا حتى يقول الرسول والذين آمنوا معه متى نصر الله ألا إن نصر الله قريب Which means, do you think, do you really think that you will enter paradise when there has not yet come to you the likes of that which came to those before you? They were afflicted by adversity and hardship until even the messenger and those along with him, they cried out, when will come the victory or the help of Allah? Indeed, the help of Allah is near. And this verse sustained me for many, many, many years in the in the dark years that I was in prison. And... In this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's telling us that he knows the nature of man, that man despairs, man is weak. And sometimes you question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't question his wisdom or his decision, but you just want it to end. You're going through so much pain. You're like, man, Allah, when is this going to end? If even a messenger said, asked Allah, when is this going to end? When is this hardship going to end? It's okay for you in those moments of despair to to, uh, to say that. Plead to Allah where you want it to end. And then Allah replies immediately after that, indeed the help of Allah is near. So his, so the lesson I got from that was whenever things would reach a breaking point, expect an opening to appear. And that's what will always happen, that the night, you know, no matter how cold and dark and long the night is, the dawn it comes after the night's darkest hour. So whatever you're going through, if things get to a point where you're at breaking point, expect some relief to come. Can you paint us a picture of what life was like in prison? I went to 11 different prisons in America and Britain in the 11 years uh, that I was there. Each prison was different. I think the hardest time was the two years that I spent in an American, in complete isolation, in an American supermax prison, which was from 2012 after I was extradited to 2014. That was the most difficult time, I'll say, not only of those 11 years of perhaps my life, That was those were the most difficult years of my life. I was in complete isolation, which means that you're in a cell by yourself for 23 to 24 hours a day. You're surrounded by mentally ill inmates who shout and scream and bang on the walls 24 hours a day so you can't sleep. Every time you leave your cell, you are subject to a complete strip search where every item of clothing is taken off your body and you have to squat and you have to it's quite a humiliating procedure even if you're only going to the shower which is like 10 feet away you have to be to be subjected to a full strip search every time you leave your cell you're placed in full shackles which means leg ankle shackles handcuffs to the back and a chain linking to the handcuffs to the to those shackles then an officer grabs you and they walk you to the the shower they lock you inside this small metal cubicle which is the shower and once you're in they take the handcuffs off but the leg shackles remain on while you shower so um you're, you're sleep deprived you get very little food um you're just by yourself there's no one to talk to there's obviously no phone or email or internet access you're thousands of miles away from from uh, from home so that was a sort of scene where 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 I was so how did it make you feel when they would shackle you and 
take you to the cubicles, etc. Was there a lot of anger or resentment? And I think that's linked into your next item as well. I sort of understood that, okay, the officers that are shackling me, some of them would be malicious and they're doing it to cause me pain or discomfort. Some of them were just doing their job. It didn't make it any easier. But there was a book that I read, which was perhaps one of the best books that I've read in my life. I actually read this book like three times and one of the best books I read in prison. And it's one of the items uh, on my list. It's a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Austrian psychologist, a Jew who spent three years in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And he wrote this book actually on scraps of paper while he was detained uh, um, inside one of these concentration camps. But the key theme that he wrote about in his book was every single thing can be taken away from a man. Every single thing, no matter how bad he's treated, people can take everything away from you except one thing. And that one thing is your choice how you wish to react to that thing. And how he would deal with whatever he went through, which was in a million years nowhere close to what I went through he would smile or he would keep his resolve he would maintain his dignity he would not allow he would not show any sort of weakness to his captors and that was my philosophy that I would smile with them I would joke with them some of them some of the good ones they would say to me that they would come to me they'll talk to me about their problem they were going through turmoil in their lives and uh, they would come in the morning 7 a.m. in the morning and they see me up and I'm detained in indefinite detention in the supermarket and I'm happy, good morning, always smiling. We have the saying in prison that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And when you're living with someone for two years in a confined space, we know the officers and the officers know us. So they knew that I wasn't putting on a show. So would there be an officer assigned to you then? No, there wasn't an officer assigned. There would just be different shift officers who would work there, but you would see them throughout the day. They would pass your food through a slot in the door. If you needed to go to a shower, these are the ones that will take you out or they'll take you out for recreation into the recreation cage. So um, you get to know them. Some of them you'll speak because they got no one to talk to as well. And they in their lives were going through turmoil. Some of them will talk to me about their girlfriend problems. Some of them will talk to me about children problems, health problems, health issues, finance issues. And they wouldn't even trust their colleagues with that. In the beginning, they treated me bad. But as they got to know me as a person, then um, they began to treat me well and some of them actually before I left that prison they came and shook my hand. Did you initially get surprised in terms of why they were sharing these you know personal stories with you and their difficulties? No not at that time because by that time I had already got to know them and see them as human beings and the reason they shared those personal aspects of their lives with me was because they also at that point they had also begun to see me as a human being I mean some were just good people outright from day one why didn't you get angry towards um I mean sometimes sometimes they would annoy you I think sometimes the things that they would do would annoy you I think I knew that like the bad ones were trying to provoke me so I understood that and I knew that things were like you'd come back to your cell. They've searched your cell and they completely turned it upside down. Your letters are all over the floor. You're, and you know, when you see that, you know that this is designed to provoke a response. But um, that's why, you know, I'll try not to um, try not to get angry as hard as it was. And actually in the ruling of the US judge, um, which eventually led to your release, uh, she heard from many British prison officials who testified on your behalf with regards to your character. And she said... British and American. And American. Yeah. And she said, it appears to me that Barbara is a generous, thoughtful person who is funny and honest. He is well-liked and humane and empathetic. I mean, did that quite surprise you then when she read that out in court? Or 
Um, issue that judgment. I guess we're always surprised when other people describe uh, things about us that we don't know about ourselves. But I think she formed this opinion after reading um, hundreds of pages of letters that people in my community that knew me since I was born, work colleagues, as well as officials and people in, in prison in, in, in America and, and Britain. But did it surprise me? Um, well, I guess some of it did, yeah. <laughs> and what was it like in terms of in that you know solitary confinement? How would you occupy yourself? Can I talk about the next item? One of the items on my list? Yep, let's go to the next um, item. I don't know if it's the next, but there is a quote by the poet, uh, 11th century Persian poet, Omar Khayyam. Be happy for this moment. For this moment is your life. And the choice ahead of me was either I can sit here and cry. Oh, look, and sit in self-pity and wallow in self-pity. Look what's happened to me. I'm in this prison thousands of miles away from home and they want to send me to prison for the rest of my... I could sit and cry about it and I could allow myself to sink or I could keep my head above the water and swim. So my routine, when I would wake up in the morning, after I'd prayed my Fajr prayer, I would sit around and look around my cell and I would thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for everything that uh, that I had. And I would go through one by one. I say, oh Allah, thank you, I have a sink. Thank you, I have a bed. Thank you, I have my own cell. Thank you, I have a slit from which I can see the clouds. Thank you, I have something to write with. Thank you, I have something to read. Thank you, I have a flushing toilet. And I'll just go through one. Thank you, I have my health. Thank you, I have family that, that looks out for me. Thank you, I've got lawyers that are fighting on my behalf. So by the time my day would begin, I would feel like a king. I would feel like I had everything and that there was nothing more that I that I needed in this world. And um, that is life. It's It's between gratitude and patience. Being grateful for the things that you have and being patient for the things that you don't have yet in the hope that tomorrow will be better than today. Tell us about your next item. I can remember. The next item is this verse in Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf was the scholar said about Surah Yusuf, there is no one who is in any sort of despair or grief or sadness or sorrow who reads this surah except that by the end of it he will be filled with hope. And many times, sometimes at my lowest moments, I would just read this surah. There's a verse that comes right at the end of this surah after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken about the the story of uh, Yusuf alayhi salam. He mentions in verse um, 110, he says, Which means, till they, the messengers, and those along with them despaired, that is the point when our help came to them, and our might cannot be diverted from the wrongdoers. And um, this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, so let me repeat that. Um, until when the messengers despaired, and they felt that they had been denied, at that moment they came to them, our help. No one can divert our might from the people, from, from the wrongdoers. So this verse also similar to the, the first item that I mentioned on the list about despair, about even the messengers feeling despair. And this is a cycle that we see in the sunnah or the tradition of Allah that when a hardship reaches critical point, when it reaches breaking point, when you're going through something and you're thinking, that's it, man, I can't take no more. I cannot take, I cannot take one second more. That is the point when relief uh, it comes to you. And why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do that? He doesn't do that because of, you know, because he's sadistic or because it causes him, uh, uh, because it causes him uh, pleasure. He does that because when you're at that moment, 
the sincerity and the heart with which you cry to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that moment and you cry to him for relief and you know that there is no one on earth, no one in the universe that can save you at that moment except him, that make, brings him pleasure. That's what he likes. And then at that moment he brings you a... He brings you relief. This verse I saw many times, I saw in my dreams. Before I would go to sleep, I would open the Quran at random. I would shut my eyes and I would point my finger and I would say, this is what Allah wants to say to me at this moment. And many, many times at my lowest points, this exact verse, it came on my finger. And many people in prison have talked about the story of Prophet Yusuf, not just the surah, but actually the story of Prophet Yusuf and his own uh, experience. I mean, is that something that resonated with you at the time? If you look at the story of Yusuf salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he calls it Ahsan al-Qasas, the best story. It doesn't mean the best story in the Quran or the best story at that time. It means the best story, period. The reason Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this story in one surah in its entirety, which no other prophet is mentioned, of a man who went to prison wrongly for many years. The accounts say he spent about 10 years in prison. And he was accused of something, to be accused of, of rape, even in nowadays, it's far worse than being accused of terrorism. And um, he was accused of that, but he maintained his principles and morals in prison. He remained a good person and eventually he was exonerated. And that story gave me hope, so much hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as long as he is looking out for you, things will always work out in the end. They may take time. In my case, they, take they took 11 years. But after 11 years to be accused of being a terrorist and then for the judge, not just any judge, one of the most senior judges in America to stand up in open court and say that this man is not a terrorist. It's sort of like it feels sweet. I mean, I knew that anyway. My family and friends knew that anyway. But for her, who's looked at all the evidence, including classified material and God knows what, and for her to come to that conclusion reminded me of what happened with Yusuf salam. And everything that he had lost, Allah gave it back to him. And uh, as bad as his life was before, that's how good it later became. Do you remember your first night in prison? Who doesn't? The first night is the hardest night. Not just in prison, it's the hardest night of your life. In fact, uh, like in, in the UK, they have a suicide prevention scheme for the first night. Because uh, that's when most suicides uh, happen. It's quite apt if I could mention the next item on my list because it ties on. Absolutely. My first night, maybe not in prison, in custody, uh, on the night of the 2nd of December 2003. And early that morning, in I was living in my house in South London. And uh, with my wife, anti-terrorism police officers burst into the house. And for the next 40 minutes or so, they continued to subject me to an ordeal of physical violence, um, sexual abuse, religious abuse, verbal abuse. This was later formally admitted in court proceedings where the Met Police Commissioner admitted that I never resisted arrest uh, and the violence was gratuitous. So when I got to the police station, I had no less than 73 physical injuries, including bleeding in my ears, in my urine. I still have um, some of the scars. Your viewers can't see it. But uh, you will see some of the scars that are still there, um, what, 14 years on. I was in a lot of physical pain. So that day, I was trying to find some sort of comfort. I couldn't sleep. There was blood. My, my wounds were sticking to the felt blanket. The police station, uh, um, the, the, the pillow was hard. My head was hurting because they punched my head about 20 times or so. So I was in a lot of physical pain and I was finding any Quranic verse or surah to get comfort. I read Surah Baqarah 
it didn't get, give me what I was looking for. I read Surah Ali Imran, I read Surah Yusuf, I read all of these until I read Surah Muhammad and that gave me the comfort. And then for the rest of those seven days until I was released, that's the only Surah that I read. And there's one verse in Surah Muhammad, which is verse 27, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and how is it when the angels will take their souls at the time of death and they will strike their faces and their backs? And that was what they did to me. I was helpless, I was defenseless, I was in uh, handcuffs, 15 officers all over me, punching my head, punching my face, punching my back, punching my kidneys. And it was like nothing was more apt. And Allah was telling me that you don't need to worry about, don't worry about what's going to happen to them. Don't worry about taking revenge. Don't worry about, I've got this sorted. This is my department. It was about justice. It was about justice. Allah saying, saying, saying to me, those same guys, when the, the time of death comes, the angels are going to beat them on their faces and on their backs. And it gave me comfort because at that time I needed it. And it was at that incident as well that one officer said, you know, while they're beating you and restraining you, you know, where's your God now? Did you feel that that then led to a deep mistrust of authority ever since then? And do you still have that difficulty with authority establishments? I've, I've come a long way since then. So the mistrust was not because of the words that those two or three officers said, you know, you're in prayer now, pray to with your God now, pray to him. It was more about the whole process and how I went through a long legal process and, and how they said that I attacked them and I resisted arrest and how it went to a jury trial and the jury believed the officers and, and they found them not guilty and they um, shook hands uh, with the officers to, to praise them. So that sort of gave me some mistrust. But I have to say that I went through all of the emotions that a person might go through. I went through anger, I went through betrayal, I went through feelings of vengeance, I went through frustration. Frustration. I went through despair, I went through helplessness. But after all of these years, I saw amongst them people that treated me nicely and kindly. Like after this whole incident that happened, when I got to the police station, it was another police officer who offered me a glass of water. And he later testified in my favour, saying that this man looked very calm and composed. He didn't look like someone who would attack police officers and his handcuff injuries were the worst that I have seen in my 35 year career. I learned that in prison as well. I had officers that treated me very badly, but I had officers that were very, very, very good to me. When I balance that, I think when wrong is happening to you and someone shows you some kindness, for me, that more than overcompensated for the wrong that was done to me. And I guess it highlights the importance of not generalizing people in communities. And I know as Muslims, we often feel we are generalized, but your own experiences, you didn't then generalize all police officers, all prison officers, all lawyers. You, you were able to take good and bad from, from each. And I guess, is that a more accurate representation of what the reality is well at the beginning i did i did generalize them because of what happened to me there are many bad uh, apples in the police force in the prison in the prison service these are places designed to break human beings but i do not believe that every single police officer is an evil man i do not believe every single prison officer or government official intelligence official whatever is an evil man some of them are, are psychopaths there's no doubt about it not some many of them are psychopaths they're racist, they hate Muslims, there's no doubt about that. But not all of them are like that. And I would not just see a police officer or someone in uniform and say that, hey, that guy's a devil, until I knew what he was, uh, uh, what he was about. 
And that's really interesting because if anyone has the right to be angry with the police service, prison service, there's not many people that have been through experience like yourself. So I guess it's important for the rest of us to keep things in context as well. Despite what you've been through, you're able to identify the good and the bad. I think one thing, I, I remember one thing that Nelson Mandela, he wrote. This isn't an item on my list, but I'm sort of going to like... You can add it in. <laughs> I'm going to add it in. He said, when I left the gates of prison after 27 years in custody, I knew that if I did not leave my bitterness, anger and hatred behind, then I would still be in prison. And I left that behind in prison. And I've chosen, it's my story, it's my narrative. I've chosen what parts of it I want to remember. And don't get me wrong, a lot of wrong was done to me. A lot of evil was, was, was done to me. I'm not afraid to talk about it. But that does not define my whole experience. My whole experience is that of an adventure, meeting different people from different places and knowing about their lives and their stories and appreciating different cultures and traveling to different lands. And, and you know, it was a whole in those 11 years. I lived a life of, of, of 100 years. So, um, you know, why should I be angry? I mean, life is too short. You know, I haven't forgiven. There's a difference. I haven't forgiven them and now lovey-dovey and kiss and, te- you know, forgiven. No, no, no. I haven't forgiven those who are that wrong to me. I'm not shackled to what they did to me because that's Allah's department. He's going to deal with them. He said to me that, look, that's my department. You don't need to worry about that. I've got that sorted. You just live your life and do. So if he's told me that he's going to, that's his department, why should I worry about justice? I'll get that all, all, all come later. Do you think there are mistakes that you made and there's things that you should have done differently in the past? Absolutely. I mean, my case was the reason I was extradited, the reason I was assaulted by the police was um, because of a um, a rat, a snitch, an informant. Some guy who is a hafiz of Quran, who's a student, uh, an imam, a student of uh, Arabic and, and who used to teach Arabic. So this was someone that actually helped. And the mistake that I made was helping someone and, and you know, that help. was before prison or yeah that was before prison. prison yeah yeah yeah. that was the reason i spent i spent 11 years in prison and i was extradited and i was assaulted by the police based on false allegations that this man made so the mistake i made was trusting people like that and you know being a bit too naive and trusting people like that tell us about your next item baba what, what will you take with you there's a quote from the torah which says most of what is feared to happen does not in fact happen linked to that is a quote that people attribute to julius caesar in which he said a coward dies a thousand deaths before his own but the valiant never taste of death except once our fears and anxieties about the future are far greater than the reality there were times where i would go through in my mind sitting alone in a prison cell late at night what if i spend the rest of my life in prison what if i go, what if i this happens what if that happens what if this that happens what if i find a, a judge who's not fair and those would kill me and one thing i learned is that most of what you fear is going to happen things don't turn out that bad so whatever you're going through whether you're going through illness or you're going through you, you've lost something or, or you're going through marital problems or you issues to do with your children or your children's schooling and how they're going to do and and to do with, with finances and job people worry about so many things which they don't actually turn out that bad so you kill yourself a hundred times before it it might not even happen and um this verse gave me a lot of this well this quote if it is from the Torah, wherever it's from but it is true and it gave me a lot of hope. You might think things will be that bad, but things won't be that bad. Let's go back to perhaps happier times um, when you're growing up as a child in London. Um, what are your memories of growing up and what was your childhood like? I'm good. Alhamdulillah, I had a good, um, happy childhood. I lived on a small council estate. 
I mean, I've described it more in the book than I'm, uh, um, you know, writing about my experience. Uh, I've written lots, lots to go. It was a positive experience. Uh, my parents, mum especially, mum and dad, but, um, you know, mum who invested a lot of time and effort into sending me to different, you know, classes or whether it's reading competition, whether it's karate, martial arts, whether it was Arabic or Islamic studies. Financially, we weren't that well off, but um, alhamdulillah, you know, we, we, we just, uh, we made the most of what we had. Uh, and I think that also helped me to get through prison. Was education a big focus for your family when you were growing up? It was, yes. I mean, like most South Asian families, um, but there was also an emphasis on physical sports as well. For most of the parents from South Asian backgrounds, it's just study, 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 study. Study is going to make you pass an exam. It's not going to make you succeed in life. Getting an A grade would not make you succeed in life. You need more than that. Uh, things to build your confidence. And um, my parents always encouraged me to join the cadet force, to do martial arts, to do sports, to be in the cricket team. And so education, yes, but with other things. And was faith always present growing up? Yes, it was. My parents always encouraged me. They taught me the values, um, you know, being honest, telling the truth. My dad is a very uh, honest man, alhamdulillah. And honesty came from him being straight in dealings. Uh, empathy I learned from my mom of reaching out to people that are in pain. We used to live across the road from a uh, hospital. And um, we grew up, so we saw deaths and we saw illnesses and we saw people being diagnosed and people spend all day and all night at the hospital and they would come to our house to rest to recuperate to pray to eat and my mum would always be sending me with uh, food and things to people in intensive care and so again these were the islamic values that my mum taught me that to care for another person and to to share in people's pain and how did they cope with your whole experience in prison well if if anything i think it was harder for them than it was uh, for me because to lose, uh, I mean, I don't have any children, but to lose your child. You see, if you, when your child die dies, you'll never get closure. You know, you'll never get closure, but at some point you come to live with it. But when your child is in, in, in prison indefinitely, it was very difficult for them. Like my dad would go to, you know, my parents would go to weddings and they'll see all my friends. And one or two times my dad would just be overcome with emotion and he'd have to stand outside because he would be searching my face amongst all my friends and he wouldn't find it. So it was very difficult for them. On Eid, they would miss me on Eid, especially in the beginning, my mum used to go and um, go to my cupboard and uh, she used to smell my clothes. And then uh, after a while, the, the smell went as well. So, um, yeah, it was more difficult for them than it was for me. And how much contact would you have with your family while you are in prison? It differed depending on which prison I was in and where. In this country, I would call them every day and they would come to see me once a week. The eight years I spent in England. In America, I was allowed three 15-minute phone calls a week. And you have to book it a week in advance and it has to be at a set time. So there were three different family houses that I would call. So in order to sort of get you know, two for the price of one, my parents would go, would walk to my sister's house. And then I would call my sister's house twice a week. And occasionally, one of my parents would be delayed, but I could not repeat that phone call. So they would have to wait until the following week. 
So they'll say, oh, dad just left. He'll just be here in five minutes. And I had a set timer. And once it's done, it's done, it's finished. And I had to go. When I was in America, I met them in those three years. I met them twice because it was very difficult and expensive. And when they went there, the authority, the first time they went, the authorities really hassled them. I mean, it would have been nice if they never extradited me in the first place. But when I was there, they did. Um, so you felt even more isolated. When you would make these phone calls, did you actually feel worse or better having spoken to family I did feel better, but it was um, it was a show. If you love your family, when they come to see you in prison or you call them from prison, you're putting on a show, they're putting on a show. I'm fine, everything is okay, and you, you talk about the positive things. You don't want them to worry about you, and they don't want you to worry about them. Sometimes, I mean, okay, obviously, you know, if I was feeling good, I'd, I'd, I'd always put on, um, you know, tell them the positives. But where I was, um, if something was bothering me, they would know it in my voice straight away. And they would be upset over it. Because your father um, was very involved in the campaign for your release. And similar to, I know, Muslims Beg's father as well. May Allah have mercy on him. Um, so I guess these fathers are really championed. Was your father naturally somebody who would be out there campaigning, speaking, travelling? It, it was funny in one way because my dad, at the start of his life, he always wanted to be a film actor. He wanted to be famous. He went for auditions and... He did do some drama work. He's a very big uh, comedian. Okay. He's got prizes for comedy. And there's photos of him on stage in all sorts of funny disguises, wearing a beard or wearing like in some woman's costume or God knows what. So um, it was funny because after I went to prison, then all our relatives, they said that, well, you know, uncle got his 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> so he became famous, famous, but maybe it wasn't for the um, wrong reasons. My dad, you know, he was one of the heroes of this uh, campaign behind the scenes was my mum was my sisters um we got a lot of inspiration and support from um Muslim Big's, uh father what he did for him may Allah have mercy on him you know my dad he's not an activist he's not a campaigner he's not a political person he just lives in his own world of of uh, cricket and, and Pakistani politics and you know he's he's a very simple person so for him now giving interviews to BBC to Sky going to court hearings and he would go early in the morning sometimes 6am a beep car would come from a you know a, a tv channel to pick him up sometimes he'd go to event speak at an event he'd come back 11 12 o'clock at night by himself tired hungry cold uh, come back by tube and he was doing all of that uh, for me so um he definitely he was um he was a hero and from what you understand when you come back i mean did life just stop for the whole family for that was those 11 years did they just adjust and get used to it it didn't stop i told them that it should not stop they would not want to go on holidays i'll tell them you have to go on holidays because i'll be sad if you don't go when they would go on dinners they would not want to tell me what they ate because they thought it might make me make me feel bad but I would insist because it would only make me feel happy. And my thing was that, look, I could spend one year in prison. I could spend five. I could spend 10. I could spend 30. Live your lives. You know, I mean, my younger sister, she got married when I was in prison. And for her, that's like the biggest moment of her life. Um, I missed a lot of uh, births. I missed a lot of marriages. I missed a lot of uh, deaths. Life just has to go on. Whatever. Be happy for this moment. For this moment is your life. Just go through whatever you're going through. Don't don't stop your life you're going through a hardship or someone around you just try to make the most of uh, of, of what you have and, 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 and what you are and when you were growing up you got quite um, involved in sort of community work and as an activist and you're involved with the young Muslims as well how did that all come about and what role did that play in your life I mean that was just youth work in my community 
and um, that gave me a direction so where other teenagers would be smoking drugs or they might be you know involved in other negative things I was trying to make my community better and I think that was also a defining moment in, in my life and I met a lot of good people who inspired me and who whose words and inspiration it kept me going through the years that I was in prison and many of them I'm still in touch with and many of them campaigned for me during the years that I was away so that was a very positive experience. Did you ever find that the friends that you had hoped would be with you disappeared and that the friends you weren't expecting came out and supported you over the years? Yes. When you go through a hardship, you find out who your friends are and you find out who your enemies are. So the strange thing for me was there was... I had close relatives who were sort of scared that if, you know, if we show that we're associated to him or to the family, then he might reflect on us. And um, which I don't blame them for that. You know, they have their own circumstances. I mean, it wasn't their problem. You know, it was my problem that I was in prison, it wasn't their problem. And then I had other distant relatives and they were proudly coming in public and saying that this is my relative and, and I'll do anything for him. And friends, likewise, people that, that, you know, again, my fault for being just so judgmental of people, people that I didn't, you know, perhaps think uh, have a high opinion of. They came out for me and they were there where maybe even members of my own family were not. But I don't hold any grudges against them. I mean, people are at different levels and um you know my relatives they still prayed for me and then they still you know had support for me you know people support in different ways but you know yeah you you had a few people a few i would say it's a very small minority of people that i would have maybe thought that okay some sort of support or, or my family would expect from them and uh, the doors were shut and then other people whom we didn't expect anything from and they formed the majority I mean, most of the people who campaigned for me, they don't know me, they never met me. They That means a lot to me because they are the real heroes because I had no choice but to bear what I was going through. And these are people who they didn't know me from Adam and they went out and they gave their time and their efforts and their du'as campaigned for someone who was a complete stranger. So that shows what is so great about our Ummah. Tell us about your next item, Babur. My next item is this um, quote from the 13th century Persian poet Sa'di of Shiraz. I cried because I had no shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. And the story goes that Saadi was this scholar and he travelled to from his city to the city of Kufa to enter the Grand Mosque and um, he was financially in a very bad situation at that time. So people on the fr day of Friday would wear their best shoes and their best clothes to go to the mosque and when he got there he didn't even have a pair of shoes. So he felt so sad for himself, like in his moment of self-pity, he sat down and he began to cry that I've come all the way here to this great mosque and I don't even have a pair of shoes. So he said, when I was sitting there crying, he said, I saw a man who had no feet. And the lesson from that is no matter what you are going through, there is always, always, always someone who is worse off than you. And no matter what I went through, there was I was in supermax, I was in isolation, there were people in worse conditions than me. There was people like Shakir Ahmed who were in Guantanamo Bay, people doing life sentences. There were people in, in prisons in, in Africa, in, in, in Latin America who were like 40 to, a, 40 to a room who didn't even have their own cell or clean water or flushing toilet. So there were people suffering, not just prison, there were people suffering from cancer, whereas I still had my health. There were people suffering from death, bereavement, disability, so many problems people were going through. And that is the lesson of life that, you know, whenever you're going through something bad, look at the things that you have. Be grateful for the things that you have and always look at those worse off than you and that will make you more grateful for the things that you have. And I guess it put, puts 
you know, many of your difficulties in life challenges in perspective and gives gives it a degree of context, doesn't it? When you were finishing from school and I think in university, you became involved with the Bosnian campaign and the war and you initially went for charity aid and then you went on to fight in Bosnia and Chechnya. Tell us a bit about what led you to take on physical military sort of tactics, etc. I mean, I was, I was 18 years old and I went to Bosnia as an aid worker. The things I saw there, the stories I heard, I came to a conclusion that there's no point giving food and water to people who are being, you know, two-year-old babies are being raped and having their throats slit. Horrific things are happening. Genitals of imams are being cut. Quran is being used uh, as toilet paper. Uh, Mosques are being destroyed. I thought there's no point giving food and water to these people. I need to stop this from happening. And so I went to the Bosnian army and I offered my services. And over the next few years, back and forth, when on the battlefield, I saw combat, I was injured as well. So that was a, a an experience. That was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't have any regrets. I'm proud and ask Allah to accept uh, whatever I did there. My only regret is that I didn't do enough and that there were other people who did more than me. It was a long time ago. It was now coming back to 25 years ago, 1992. That was my first visit to Bosnia. I was 18. And I came back and um, I felt the need for Muslims to, um, you know, to be able to defend themselves, uh, that uh, they should be able to defend themselves. And I, and Did you ever feel close to death? Yeah, there were there were a lot of times where, where I was uh, close to death. But as a Muslim, when you're going to places like this, you know, you know very well what you what you sign up for. Even at that young age? Absolutely. You know, I'd learned, I'd read the stories of the Sahaba and and. and I knew that that was a risk uh, that I'm putting myself forward for. But these people, they were my brothers and sisters and, and I was doing it to protect them. And if the roles had been reversed, they would have done the same. They would have done the same for me. And how did you cope with, I guess, because you were at university at the time as well, weren't you? And you're coming and going. I mean, it's two different worlds on one side. You're it is. Your degree and then going on to the battlefield. I think the biggest miracle is the fact that I actually got through and I completed my course and I passed at the end of it. I managed to scrape through. But yes, because those four years, I was throughout those years, I was basically obsessed with the war in Bosnia. You know, university was almost like an afterthought. So What would, did you do at university? I studied aeronautical engineering. I would go in my holidays and I would, you know, my evenings and weekends would be spent raising money and things. And that obviously, that was a different era. Times have changed. The conflicts have changed. Laws have changed. You know, you can't do... Um, you know, the, there's consequences and the, there's risks involved in, in doing that stuff. I was fighting as part of an established army. I was fighting another, you know, I was fighting soldiers on a battlefield. Things are a bit more complicated. And one thing I learned from my experience in Bosnia, that uh, not every conflict in the world is Bosnia. So what would you say to those people again over the last few years that are seeing the sense of injustice, about the need to defend our brothers and sisters around the world and that they feel they need to do perhaps what you did? I mean, there's nothing wrong in feeling outrage. You know, there's nothing wrong in that, in feeling passionate or outrage or, or, or anyone with humanity, let alone a Muslim who feels for his brothers and sisters, would feel this way. But know the history of what you are doing. Conflicts are quite complicated. Is being portrayed as a Muslim versus non-Muslim battle in a certain country. But then you have powers like Russia or you have uh, America involved or you have you know, Europe. And you, they're, they're really, really conflict complicated. 
or you have Shia Sunni conflicts, you have don't allow yourself to be a pawn that that you're you're going with good intentions, but you're actually being used. And uh, there was an element of that which I learned from from the experience that the conflicts that I was involved in in, in Bosnia and Chechnya. And things are different. You know the consequences of what you're signing up for. Know the legal consequences. Know the physical consequences. Someone he's going and he knows he's going to go to prison if he comes back. I mean, sometimes people get into these things uh, with naivety, not knowing what the consequences are. Even injury. Some people they they get injured and then they like, hey, okay, I didn't sign up for this. I thought I was going to be shaheed. I was going to be martyred. I didn't expect to be disabled or blinded for the rest of my life. The war is serious business. People should um, know the consequences and don't go in emotion because activism, you know, activism should not be uh, motivated by anger or hatred. Or, or, or revenge. Activism should be motivated by love and empathy. And there are many ways that you can help in these conflicts. Whatever you do, it do it out of love and do it out of empathy. Don't do it out of negative feelings uh, because the result of that is not good. Tell us about your next item, Barber. My last item is a quote from a book called The Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexandre Dumas. And this was a novel that I read in 2013 when I was in confined in the supermax prison. It was recommended to me by um, my lawyer and uh, friend, uh, Kelly Barrett. So I spent three months reading it. The reason I'd spent three months, not because I'm a slow reader and I got nothing else to read. I was afraid the book would finish. It's a 900 page book. So I was working on my case for 14 hours a day. And the last half hour before I went to sleep, I would read this book. I would be in a different planet, 18th century France, 19th century France. And um, I would be in a different planet. So this book, it basically, it tells the story of a man, uh, wrong is done to him. Uh, he goes to prison for many years and when he goes to prison, he loses family, his money, his wealth, everything he loses it when he comes out. Sorry, when he goes to prison, then by chance of miracle, he comes out and he becomes very, very rich. And then the story is told that those people that were kind to him, a lot of good things come to them. And those people that were wrong to him, a lot of bad things happen uh, to them. So at the end of the story is this quote, and it's a very, very powerful quote, which was, you know, which was the last of my eight items. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only the comparison of one state with another, nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is best able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die that we may appreciate the enjoyments of life. Live then and be happy and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. And the message I got from this, that the more you have suffered in your life, the more pain and despair and grief that you have suffered in your life and your past, what you've gone through, the more happiness you are able to experience and the richer your life becomes once you've gone through that experience. And I would not have wished or wanted to go through the experience that I went through. But looking back, I'm glad I went through that experience because my life is now richer as a result of it. Uh, I, I see things... I feel more about things um, that, that, that I didn't used to see before. I was blind to them uh, before. And I see those now and I appreciate them now. And I feel that is, um, you know, my life is richer as a result of what I went through. And you've been a free person for nearly two years. 
Um, what are your ambitions for the future? Are you thinking about looking forward? How do you keep, you know, what are you working towards now? So this, I've been back for just less than two years. So I haven't been back that long. I was away for 11 years and I've only been back for about 20 months or so. So I'm doing the things that I'm trying to get back on my feet, trying to earn. I need to get married, bits in the house, you know, little things that, that normal day-to-day things that everyone else uh, does. But once I get back on my feet, one of the things that I really want to do is I want to give people hope. I realize that there is suffering in the world, but you can get through suffering and you can get through hardship. You can get through injustice. You can get through it without it turning you into a bitter, angry person, without it turning you into a negative person. Life is full of hardships and struggles. The more we share, the more we can we can get from each other. So my message that I, I want something positive to come out of my experience. I'm writing a book. I write a, uh, I have a blog at barbarahmed.com. I have a Facebook page where, where I post. And I just want to spread a message and, and to give people hope, whatever they're going through, whatever you're going through. You're going through domestic violence. You're going through poverty, disability, cancer, illness. You can't find a job. You're, you're, you're going through mental illness. Whatever you're going through, just have hope that tomorrow will be uh, better than uh, today. Just have, have hope that um, one day the sun will shine again um, as it did for me. So, Babar, how do you relax and what makes you laugh? How do I relax? Um, I guess just spending time with uh, my nieces, nephews, young children. That makes me relax. That takes me into a different world. That makes me relax. That's something I wasn't able to do for 11 years and moments of solitude being by myself if I'm driving or if I'm going on the tube I'm just walking somewhere by myself be alone in my thoughts that uh, helps me to um, helps me to relax so although you've had a lot of solitude in the last 10-11 years do you actually prefer that solitude you haven't gone the other way and you're always seeking company or social you know socialization or you do you find no, I'm not. Solitude is what you. I'm not a hermit. I wouldn't say I prefer solitude because my eleven year, my solitude in prison was um, not out of choice. They're not more than enough for a lifetime. Yes, but there are times, there are parts of it that I do miss. You know, that the, there is that closeness to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, that 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 relationship. And one thing I've learned over these eleven years is when you talk to Allah, don't talk to Him like a God. Talk to Him like a friend. Talk to him about what's in your heart. Talk to him like a friend. Open your heart out to him. And he will listen to you. He will respond to you. And there were times I would make dua to him. And instantly he would answer those duas. Because I needed an answer now. I didn't need it like after some time. I said, man, Allah, I need this now, man. I can't wait. And he would always answer. He'd give it to me straight away. So, um, yes, I do miss parts of solitude. and, and But obviously I like, you know, mixing. I'm a very like social sociable person. Um, I like company, but I do also like times of uh, of solitude as well. But it hasn't. Some people prison turns them into like hermits. So um, I'm glad, alhamdulillah, it hasn't turned me into a hermit. Are you still able to laugh? Of course, I. I, I in, in fact, the only complaint I have from those close to me that sometimes I, I laugh too much and I need to be more serious. <laughs> I mean, um, I learned that in prison. Even before that, that was my philosophy that some things. If you got a choice whether to laugh or cry about something, just laugh, man. It's easier to laugh than uh, it's easier to laugh than it is to cry. So you're an optimist. Well, you have to be because our prophet was an optimist. Our prophet Sallam, he gave people hope, and um, if we follow him, we have to be optimists. So as we come towards the end of the interview, Babur, um, you can take a book with you on this desert island. Uh, what book would you take with you? Don't be sad. 
by Aid Al-Qarni been translated into Arabic, Urdu, I think different languages. It's about a 400 page book which has chapters that are long as half a page or one page and they are just small anecdotes, stories, quotes all designed to uplift a person and make him not feel sad and I read this and it's not this is like a book where you can open it, you can read one or two pages a day or you can open it at random and I got so much benefit from this book and former Guantanamo detainees also told me that this was the most popular book in Guantanamo Bay as well so if you're going through any sort of hardship just read this, get this book, don't be sad and you don't have to be a reader because the chapter is about if you, as long as you can read half a page or one page in one sitting and I think even with the age of smartphones most people can do that then um, get this book and if you could take a luxury item with you to this desert island, what would you take? And it has to be a smartphone with a satellite connection and a solar charger. Sorry. It's cheating a little bit, but... Once I got that, then I can... Uh, the only problem with that is I'm not sure that Amazon delivers to <laughs> desert islands. Or they, they might with these drones that they're coming out with. So um, that might be an option. And what would you be doing on the phone? What would you be connecting with? I'd just be talking to my family. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I wouldn't be like... A, you know, watching YouTube videos of cats playing the piano and things like that, because I'm sure there will be a bandwidth problem. <laughs> well, Brother Barber, Jazakallah khair for your time. Really appreciate it. I think it's been uh, so many lessons and inspirations that we can learn. May Allah reward you for everything you've been through and, inshallah, you know, give you the strength to continue and reach your ambitions that you have for the future. And please remember us in your du'as. Well, I mean, thank you very much for, for having me and for giving me this opportunity. And I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that through my experience, um, people can get hope, whatever they're going through in their lives. And I hope they can get a bit more than hope. And they can Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. Let us know so what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook sure page. You and keep it, an eye out for special you, uh, versions of the show sure on mcmuslim.tv. So, Babar, how do you relax and what makes you laugh? How do I relax? Um, I guess just spending time with uh, my nieces, nephews, young children that makes me relax that takes me into a different world that makes me relax that's something I wasn't able to do for 11 years and moments of solitude being by myself if I'm driving or if I'm going on the tube I'm just walking somewhere by myself be alone in my thoughts so although you've had a lot of solitude in the last 10-11 years do you actually prefer that solitude you haven't gone the other way and you're always seeking company or social you know socialization are you i'm not a hermit i wouldn't say i prefer solitude because my 11 year my solitude in prison was um not out of choice they're not more than enough for a lifetime yes but there are times there are parts of it that i do miss you know that the, there is that closeness to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that 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 relationship and one thing i've learned over these 11 years is when you talk to allah don't talk to him like a god talk to him like a friend Talk to him about what's in your heart. Talk to him like a friend. Open your heart out to him. And he will listen to you. He will respond to you. And there were times I would make dua to him. And instantly he would answer those duas. Because I needed an answer now. I didn't need it like after some time. I said, man, Allah, I need this now, man. I can't wait. And he would always answer it. He'd give it to me straight away. Yes, I do miss parts of solitude. and, and But obviously I like, you know, mixing. I'm a very like social sociable person. Um, I like company. But I do also like times of uh, of solitude as well but it hasn't some 
people prison turns them into like hermits so um i'm glad alhamdulillah it hasn't turned me into a hermit are you still able to laugh of course i i I've, in, in fact the only complaint i have from those close to me that sometimes i i laugh too much and i need to be more serious i mean um i learned that in prison even before that that was my philosophy that some things if you got a choice whether to laugh or cry about something just laugh man it's easier to laugh than it is to cry you're an optimist well you have to be because our prophet was an optimist our prophet he gave people hope if we follow him we have to be optimists so as we come towards the end of the interview Babur um, you can take a book with you on this desert island uh, what book would you take with you Don't Be Sad by Aid Al-Qarni been translated into Arabic Urdu I think different languages it's about a 400 page book which has chapters that are long as half a page or one page and they are just small anecdotes stories quotes all designed to uplift a person and make him not feel sad and i read it and it's not this is like a book where you can open it you can read one or two pages a day or you can open it at random and i got so much benefit from this book and former guantanamo detainees also told me that this was the most popular book in guantanamo bay as well So if you're going through any sort of hardship just read this get this book don't be sad and you don't have to be a reader because the chapter is about if you as long as you can read half a page or one page in one sitting and I think even with the age of smartphones most people can do that then um get this book and if you could take a luxury item with you to this desert island what would you take there has to be a smartphone with a satellite connection and a solar charger sorry It's cheating a little bit but Once I got that then I can uh, the only problem with that is I'm not sure that Amazon delivers to desert <laughs> islands or they they might with these drones that they come and get with so um that might be an option and what would you be doing on the phone what would you be connecting with I just be talking to my family yeah. that's it yeah I wouldn't be like uh, you know watching youtube videos of cats playing the piano and things like that because I'm sure there would be a bandwidth problem <laughs> Well brother Barbara jazakallah khair for your time really appreciate it Um I think it's been uh, so many lessons and inspirations that we can learn. May Allah reward you for everything you've been through and inshallah you know give you the strength to continue and reach your ambitions that you have for the future and please remember us in your duas. Well I mean thank you very much for for having me and for giving me this opportunity and I hope that uh, you know I hope that through my experience um people can get hope whatever they're going through in their lives and i hope they can get a bit more than hope and that they can bring some sweetness to their lives by buying my honey so go to latinhoneyshop.com before you uh, forget it make sure you place an order online straight away ever a salesman jazakallah khair brother baba assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam thank you for listening to desert island gems let us know what you think of the show on the radio ramadan facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on macmuslim.tv